I'm going to do a reading, and I suspect I'll have a very, very small audience for this, <laughs> like, like zero, like me. This is very interesting to me, and I did not know about this body of work. When I uh, There's a section in my book about kitsch, obviously, and I got that from reading uh, Kundera. Uh, Kundera, the writer who, the Czech writer, Czech born, most of his career was in, was in, was in France, but he's Czech born and wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being. It was a fantastic novel. And in that novel, he talks about kitsch, but I didn't know there was an intellectual history behind this idea that culture can become kitschified, that you can, you can end up sort of drowning in this kind of weird commodified replacement for actual art and literature and so on, which is exactly what I think, I mean, it's fairly, to me anyway, it's like very clear that there's a connection currently between the, basically the embrace on all different, in all different sorts of ways, there's this cultural embrace of what amounts to kitsch and the kind of, uh, the dependence we have on the technology that we use, which just kind of commodifies everything by design. That's what it does. Um, so there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of analysis about how kitsch sort of like weeds in your garden. How does it end? How do you end up like at the opposite end of say the Renaissance where you have this explosion of original art that's primarily representational? How do you end up with kitsch that's threatening to, that does in fact, at, at, at best you just get this stasis for artistic and literary development. And there's different strands of this. There are different explanations for this. And I didn't have access to this much more voluminous body of research. I didn't know that it existed, frankly. I was in Prague. I was in Czech Republic. And I was reading Kundera's excellent novel. And that was effectively... And then I, I did some research on what does the German word mean and what's the um, etymology of it. But only enough that I knew what I was saying in the book. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that there was this much longer discussion going on in, in, engaging this concept of kitsch, which is, which is just, it's, it's a pejorative word, right? Like you can't say, well, yeah, I know about kitsch and I like it, man. It's like, it doesn't work like that. It's a pejorative word. It's like saying it's not good. It's the, it's the absence of genuine or authentic uh, creative endeavor, basically. It's, this is what it is by design. And um, so people, intellectuals primarily, art critics, literary critics, other people, philosophers generally, to the extent that they're aware of this problem, and they tag it as kitsch, they label it as such, they kind of want to know, A, how does it arise? Why is it embraced? And how do you expurgate it? How do you get fucking rid of it? Right? And so this is, this, this is super interesting, actually, to me. So this podcast is just going to be a, a reading, actually. Maybe I should kill the jazz here. Um, of this. One of my favorite American writers, by the way. Um, and there's a funny connection here. Uh, his, 
he, the, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now, um, the Metaphysical Club was the book that I found, I discovered him through, Louis Menand, who I think is at Harvard now, and, but he was, I think his longtime career at, the, at New York University, and there's this interesting connection which is just coincidental and otherwise doesn't mean anything, but my former editor at Harvard, not my current one, but my former one, his wife taught English literature in the same department and knew and knows Louis Manan really well. And so when I was talking with my editor about how I had found, I had discovered Peirce originally through a professor of mine who was talking about him in a, in a analytic philosophy context in terms of his development of, of abductive inference in the logic of science, right? Like in that Popperian tradition of, of, of uh, the philosophy of science. And, um, and obviously the philosophy of mathematics and everywhere else where you uncover, where you, where you have to deal with, you have to have a treatment of inference in, this, in the subject. So I discovered, I discovered Peirce really in philosophy class, philosophy of science. And then I later rediscovered him like decades later by reading the Metaphysical Club where he features prominently. He was one of the founding, if not the founding member of this semi-mythical metaphysical club. And then, of course, I read everything I could get my hands on about Peirce because he formed the key sort of hinge in my discussion about artificial intelligence. So... So I don't know how long of a section to read here. Okay, let me see. So this is a good this is a good paragraph that I want to read. This was the avant-garde portion of Greenberg's argument. The kitsch portion was an extended expanded version of what he had said in the letter to McDonald, Greenberg, Greenberg defined kitsch as popular commercial art and literature with their chromotypes, magazine covers, illustrations, ads, slick and pulp fiction, comics, tin pan alley music, tap dancing, Hollywood movies, etc., etc. He proposed that kitsch was a product of the same historical moment that led to avant-gardism, the Industrial Revolution. Urbanization and mass literacy created a new market to meet the demand. To meet the demand, a new commodity was devised, ersatz culture, kitsch, destined for those who, insensible to the values of genuine culture, you can just feel the Marxism in this, right? Uh, which is fine, actually. I pull, by the way, just as an aside, I pull a lot of my ideas out of Marxism, right? Because there's, like, really, really smart people worked on expanding and expounding and developing those ideas, um, it, um, this is Ersatz culture, kitsch destined for those who, insensible to the values of genuine culture, are hungry nevertheless for the diversion that only culture of some sort can provide, end quote. This manufactured, formulaic, formulaic for-profit culture drove out folk art and authentic popular culture and replaced it with what were essentially commodities. MacDonald, Greenberg wrote, had shown how Stalin turned Soviet cinema into kitsch. The same thing was happening to the arts in Germany and in Italy under Hitler and Mussolini. 
Kitsch was a way for dictators to ingratiate themselves with the masses. That is, that's Kundera's point in The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Uh, this was a warning to the liberal democracies. For capitalism, and this is a quote again, for capital, capitalism in, in decline finds that whatever of quality it is still capable of producing becomes almost invariably a threat to its own existence. Advances in culture, no less than advances in science and industry, corrode the very society under whose ages they are made possible. A desperate capitalism will devour its own best art. See, I think something like this, I think something like this is going on. I can't, I can't quite grab it at the root, but I think something like this is going on. Socialism was necessary not only for the creation of a new culture, but also for the preservation of whatever living culture we have right now. In his diary, he put it this way, kitsch is equivalent in culture of bourgeoisie democracy in politics. You know, I can't really disagree with that. <laughs> My piece has been a success, Greenberg wrote to Lazarus in November 1939. James Burnham, he is the famous writer, I think writer, James Burnham, says it's one of the best articles they've published. Uh, Van Wick Books wrote a note to say he thought it very fine. Louis Bogan, Louis Bogan likes it. Delmore Schwartz thinks it's a wonderful piece of work and should be printed in italics and so forth. Now the PR wants me to write more articles for them. That's the partisan review. And I feel very warm and gratified. Six months later, his essay was reprinted in the British journal Horizon, just started by the critic um, Cyril Connolly. Jim, uh, Greenberg reported to Lazarus that Harold Her Rosenberg had told McDonald that he liked the essay with reservations but that he never mentioned it to Greenberg himself. What an egoism, G Greenberg wrote, that can't afford to give me the little salve of a compliment. It was the start of a lifelong animosity. Greenberg turned immediately to his next essay, a theoretical extension of the argument of avant-garde and kitsch. This, the editors at Partisan Review were considerably less enthusiastic about. It was heavily edited, and they sat on it for nine months. Yeah. It finally appeared in the July-August issue in 1940 as towards a newer... Lacoon, Laocoon, not sure what that word is. I don't know how to parse that. Uh, it's, not a, it's, it's not a common English word, that's for sure. The immediate impact was small, but the essay articulated a position that Greenberg would make well known through his subsequent work and art crit. That Greenberg would make well known through his, such, through his, through his such, subsequent work and art critic, medium specificity towards a newer Laocoon argues backward from the present supremacy of abstract art to the principles upon which such an art must be based Greenberg decide that's the historical sort of idea that thoroughly the intellectuals in the 20th century were thoroughly entrenched in this way of thinking and I actually think that it was productive in a lot of ways to think this way right Greenberg decided that those that these had to do with what he called purity. The abstract artist is committed to keeping painting within the boundaries of its own medium. Painting is experienced visually and synchronically and is therefore not like literature, which is experienced cognitively and diachronically. Literature tells a story, painting should not. Painting is two-dimensional and therefore not like sculpture. Neither painting nor poetry is about ideas which belong to non-aesthetic media. 
I don't know. I would beg. I think T.S. Eliot would have begged to differ. Greenberg thought that achieving this purity was the product of modern art and literature, and that by that by 1940 that project had succeeded. The arts lie safe now, each within its legitimate boundaries, and free trade has been replaced by what is that word? Autarky. Here's some very strange words in here. Either that, or I'm super hungover. I've never seen I've never seen that quite put that way. Autarky. He wrote, purity in art consists in the acceptance, willing acceptance of the limitations of the medium of the specific art. It is by virtue of its medium that each art is uniquely and strictly itself. Greenberg had met the literary editor of The Nation, Margaret Marshall, at a party at McDonald's in the fall of 1940. In March 1942, she offered him a job as the magazine's regular art critic. The Nation paid much better than Partisan Review, which is why he was able to quit his job at Customs. Around that time that avant-garde and kitsch came out, Greenberg had met and begun a relationship with Cyril Connolly's American wife, Jean Bakewell. The two were living independent lives. She left Connolly, and her affair with Greenberg was still going on when he was drafted in, ni- in February 1943. Jean filled in for him at the nation. So, that, unfortunately, is all Menand is going to give me about Kitsch, it looks like. Now he's going to transition to just some biographical sketch of Jackson Pollock. Uh, although I could be wrong because I got excited and I didn't finish reading the entire chapter. He may return back to the question of kitsch, but this idea, what they're trying to do basically, let me just step back. What people are trying to understand is, is why is, why is representational art in the rear view? Why is it that the, there is an avant-garde in the first place? Why did it take root? And is there some deeper explanation of avant-garde art in culture this is in the early part of the 20th century and it began by the way in the mid to late 19th century this is where it started this is where representational art started to started to unravel as as it were and the the main people kandinsky and these kind of uh these kind of artists started to pull away from it and the question some the a simple analysis and I'm not an art critic obviously I'm a writer <laughs> I'm not a, and I'm not a writer about art <laughs> so you know take this with a grain of salt but the simple analysis is that people had exhausted the representational medium in the sense that there there's just no there was some, there needed to be something new in the art community and um, people moved into sort of reactionary modes and, you know, by, by hook and by crook, by degrees, kind of just stopped doing representational art because it had been done. I mean, if you go back and look at, you know, I mean, if you go back and, and look at all the way back to, say, Da Vinci, right, where you're, re- you're writing, you're representing the human form and you're bringing it out in different ways. I mean, Da Vinci even as early as the 1400s and the 1500s, Da Vinci had perfected representational art. This is centuries ago, right? To the point where if you look at some of his paintings, they look like they're looking back at you. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just shocked and amazed at the, the, the level, the creative genius that comes out in that, you know, in, in representational art. But this, like, since the Renaissance in the Western world, and arguably even before, this, 
this was like what everybody was striving to accomplish. And then at some point, the simple analysis is, is that somebody just wants to something new on, you know, we, we need something new on the menu. But the, the Marxian analysis is that it came out of the Industrial Revolution and it's connected to the commodification of culture generally. Uh, I'm sorry, that the kitsch was, but that avant-garde was actually a new, it was a, a new way of reviving art that wasn't a throwback and it wasn't, I mean, this, this is what I take to be, this is really, really cursory analysis, but avant-gardeism was an actual, it's an actual legitimate artistic endeavor that breaks, that had to sort of necessarily break from representational art but it did not, in fact, it was, in fact, a desperate move to avoid the Borg of getting commodified and turned into kitsch, right? So it's a kind of reaction against the past. And then as you have this displacement in culture, if the Industrial Revolution, if nothing else, created the concept of the individual that was alone and anxious, right? Like this is, you can just trace dots from the industrial revolution to sartre and existentialism is a humanism and this problem we have this new problem because people are wandering into big cities and looking for work and they're no longer connected to their social circumstances in a way that was that was stabilizing before so you have this destabilization and you have this new idea of the the individual that's brought out and start and in that, in that kind of situation, your art is going to have to try to express something new because everything is new and people are, un, people are unsettled, right? So the, um, the Marxist and I think a, 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 the, a lot of the intellectual thought that went into why did, because on the surface, why is this even a problem, avant-garde art? Well, because have you looked at a Jackson Pollock painting? What the fuck? What is that? Like, that looks like I could do that, but it turns out that you can't, actually, and I don't know, and I'm not an artist, and I'm not going to wander into territory that I can't, you know, meaningfully talk about. But, it, but as, as I understand it, it actually is really hard to do all that stuff. And, but, like, you look at it, and you think, look, how did we get from the Sistine Chapel to that, to, like, splashes of paint and, and you know, de Kuhn and, uh, you know, Kandinsky and these guys, right? I'm trying to remember what Kadinsky's was his what his body of work was, um, but but the, so the, you do have this prima facie problem of trying to understand how that's an that's actually something meaningful in and in, in culture and like what problem is it solving in culture or is it just a capitulation to chaos and angst right. And, and so, right. And so what that guy with the, with the, the reason I'm interested in writing this is that he's saying he's juxtaposing of the, uh, the avant-garde with the problem of mass culture and kitsch. And, and that, ju- that just, that juxtaposition I think is extremely interesting. So yeah, that's the problem. And just exactly by, by the way, there are so many theories. I read a, a very interesting book called the master and his emissary by what I, who I consider to be a very smart and well-read neuroscientist from Oxford, uh, Ian McGilchrist, I think is his name, who actually argues that what's happening when we go through these huge cultural shifts, uh, like for instance, from representational to abstract art and so on, 
like what's happening actually is is that the parts that our left and our our right brain are assuming a kind of dominance and so you have very geometric and abstract kind of visualization of nature you have you have a kind of imitation of imitation when you have left brain dominance and you actually see this clinically when you look at drawings of people who have some lesions uh they have right brain lesions right so their left brain has to be dominant because you have that crossover and when you have left brain dominance more than like when it's pathological right because you have some damage to the brain or it's just experimentally deactivated which you can do with electricity so that it can't really throw in its it can't contribute to to whatever task you're giving it you see these like it's just real it looks like abstract art it's like all it's like it looks like cubism when you say like draw the tree you draw the people who are left brain dominant actually draw the tree with the, the leaves are triangles and so on and it's very in a way it's like very interesting it's like wow it's it's interesting that you see a tree as an agglomeration of geometrical shapes instead of a, a natural thing so what's funny about this though is it sounds like it could you could look at this as kind of pop psychology bullshit but in fact when you see the drawings you can see that the brain has two ways of looking at things really has two ways of looking at things it's no it's like that that's no joke like that's real what's happening there um the inability or the ability to see something just completely differently and so if you have real if you have real if you have right brain so you have a deactivation of the left and you have real you have a, a real a uh, a strong stronger than a pathological dominance of on the right hemisphere then you get these flowing fucking <laughs> right drawings right and there's this there's this real embrace of the specificity of the thing they're looking at um but on the other hand there's this sort of inability to abstract the shapes and so on and so he he's arguing that like there we're in this fight Oh, century, since really the beginning of the development of modern cognition and modern culture and modern human uh, thinking, right? We've been in this, the, this fight of, of between left and right brain dominance and for various reasons that are sort of unclear, sometimes we have more of one and less of the other and then all of culture as a consequence of that basic cognitive shift, all of culture starts to shift. That I think is, it, it, I think the thesis is actually true in a way, like in a way meaning it's, I don't know that it's like the, the problem is, is I think that there's a lot of truth in that thesis. That's my gut feel having read his, his book. It makes perfect sense. And there's experimental evidence that just, so it's just not speculation. It's like, yeah, this is what's happening when your brain's going toward, towards left or right hemisphere dominance. But on the other hand, it does feel reductionistic. There does seem to be other layers or levels of analysis. Certainly the historical Marxian one is probably bears a lot of fruit. That's probably a productive way also of looking at uh, the emergence of avant-garde or abstract art and what function it was serving and why was it that rather than something else? And, um, you know, the problem with all of these, when you're trying to make sense, when you're trying to make sense of history, the problem with all this is that you never can quite 
you never quite know if you've got the story right. But what I try to do is I throw out the idea that I'm going to get the story right as if it's a math problem. It's like, well, it was Marx. It was a 70% Marxist ideology that was, you know, it was the commodification and then in, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the merge of existentialism because of the rise of the individual and that you have this new social problem of like, we don't have social ties. Like it was 70% that, and it was 15% this is like, there's not a math problem. What you're trying to do is grasp or gain a deeper appreciation and understanding for how human beings live from decade to decade and century to century and things do change and there are at least partial stories that you can tell about why right like there are like the 20th century was in large part trying to figure out what to do with totalitarianism we had this cancer that emerged abruptly and violently in western culture that was supposed to be secure western culture which damn near ruined the entire world and so a lot of what's going on in the 20th century is reeling from that and trying to make intellectuals and everyone else, politicians, trying to make sense of that. How does it arise? Was it sui generis in the sense of, you know, like, was that literally just a one-off that we'll ne we're never likely to see again? Or are the roots of totalitarianism, to borrow from Arendt, right, the... the the origins of totalitarianism, are those actually conditions that can reemerge? And can we point to them and isolate them and then take steps to make sure that sort of thing doesn't happen? How could it happen? And since it did happen, why did it happen? And what does it say about the future? What does it say about the human condition and everything else? And so, yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're doing this, I'm, you're not, I don't think you're ever, I don't think it's ever possible to pull out or abstract out, extract, I should say, out of a historical analysis, however careful and however deep, the actual truths of the matter in this kind of mathematical certainty sense. I think that's itself a kind of cognitive uh, bias or it's a, it's a, it's a cognitive failure. To, to even think that it can proceed that way is actually a failure of you to understand what you're doing when you're engaging on the project. But can you get a deeper and richer understanding of what's going on such that a light can be shined in our current age? Well, of course I think that, or I wouldn't bother to do all this and I wouldn't bother to read all this. So yeah, the conclusion here is I'm going to go grab that from the Partisan Review circa 1939, Kitsch and the avant-garde. And I think that's going to be really, I'm really excited to read that. So this is just about 30 minutes. I shall say goodbye.